This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. We are delighted to be together. It's time for the preaching of God's Word. If you have your Bible open to John 20. John chapter 20 is where we will be this morning. We're intentionally going short in this service. We want you to have ample time to be together. We felt like the opportunity to fellowship after this service. We know that you might have family plans. We might know that you might have personal things going on, but we want you to be able to stay around. So we're intentionally going short this morning. Let's go to John chapter 20. As you turn there, Let me just remind you that we are together this morning because Jesus is really alive. I thought I'd get at least more than those two half-hearted amen. So let's, let's try this again. We are here and we've gathered this morning because Jesus really is alive. Very good. That's better. Now, it was a long time ago. And so we have a tendency to view history like we view movies. Like there was something that was sort of a fictionalized, dramatized version of a real thing, but Jesus really did rise and get up and walk out of the grave. And so there was a real day like this one when he died And there was a real day like this one when he was resurrected. That's not a fictionalized dramatization of something else. It's not a feeling. It really happened in history. And so right now, all these years later, he still lives. He's never died again. He rose from the grave and then he ascended into heaven so that right now he's in heaven. And are you ready for this one? One day, a real day, you will see him. You will not just see his glory. You will not just see his handiwork. You will not just see evidences of him. If your faith is in Jesus, you will actually see him face to face. And as incredible as that is, if I'm honest, maybe you're this way too, doesn't that scare you a little bit? Isn't it a little bit frightening to think I'm going to stand and see, not just see the evidences of Jesus' work, not just see creation, not just see the things that God has done, but I'm actually going to see God. And and don't get me wrong, I want that. I want to see God. I'm in for it. But I'm also a a little bit nervous because that's going to be new for me. It's going to be new for you too. So I think there's probably a lot of us in here feeling that same way. Just a little bit of apprehension. What does that look like to see God? What will it be like to see the truly and really resurrected Jesus? And is there anything we can do to prepare for that now? Well, there is, and we're going to look at it this morning. After his resurrection, hundreds of people saw Jesus. But the Bible gives particular attention to just a few of them, and I really want to focus on one of them this morning. She's a woman that that Christians have come to know as Mary Magdalene. 
She's actually the very first person to see Jesus after he's resurrected. And then what we, when, what we see, when we see how she encountered him, we're given a, a sense of what our relationship with the resurrected Jesus is meant to be like. So in just a minute, we're going to read this in John 20. But before we do that, let's join together in a, a word of prayer. Jesus, praise be to your name. Holy, unworthy of death, but went to the cross anyway. Worthy of all glory and found it, given it. May it be praised for you forever. May your name be praised forever as we look at the resurrection. And so I pray now. That as we see what it's like to really encounter the resurrected Jesus, that you would speak powerfully, but also intimately and personally to each person in the room and to all those watching online. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So John 20, starting at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. While it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So so this isn't some suspenseful thing. You know, you're here this morning. We've talked about it a lot. You know what's going to happen. I don't, you know, what's going to happen? The stone's rolled away. You know, you know the story. It's why we worship on Sundays. Uh, The other gospels tell us that there were friends with Mary, and they all came early, before dawn even. So they would have spent the Sabbath, which was Saturday, they would have spent that restricted and in mourning over the death of Jesus. And they wouldn't have been able to go anywhere, so they wouldn't have been able to come to the tomb. So they get up very early on Sunday morning, and they're going to go attend to Jesus' body. It was, the bodies would be packed and uh, wrapped with spices and garments. But here now, the women are surprised. The tomb is open, and they don't know what's going on. So she, Mary Magdalene, ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, Mary's working theory, because you know what happened, but she doesn't yet. Her working theory at this point is some version of somebody's moved the body. And to be clear, she, she doesn't know at all that he's alive yet. She doesn't, that, that's not part of her worldview right now. None of them do. It won't be long until they do, but right now, everybody is under the assumption, because why wouldn't they be, in a sense, that Jesus is dead? So verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, I just have to mention this because it's funny. The other disciple is John. John wrote this book. He could have said, So Peter and I ran over there, could have said, so even the two of them ran to the tomb, but instead, John makes sure everybody knows it was race, and he won. Look at that. They ran together, and the other disciple reached the tomb first. So for 2,000 years, every Easter morning, John's digging Peter. So we ran, 
I won. You know, he is risen indeed. And John's in the background like, amen, and I won. Um, I remember when I beat you, Peter. I just, I just think that's funny. So verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came, probably mad that he lost, and charges right in, went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up by itself. So John gets there first. He peeks in, but he waits. Peter gets there, again, after John, and charges right in, and what they find doesn't point to somebody moving a body, and it doesn't point to tomb robbers. They find a linen burial cloth, which would have been in there. In the first century, what you did, again, is you packed the body in many, many spices to mask the smell of human flesh decaying, and then you wrapped all of that in strips of linen. So now, the linen's lying there, and John makes note of saying that the cloth that was used to cover Jesus' face was actually neatly folded up. The purpose in going into this kind of detail is to make sure that, that no one will come in, come along later and say, well, they, they made this whole thing up. And that's exactly what people tried to do. But even these seemingly insignificant points contribute to the historical accuracy and the veracity of the, the resurrection account. No one who's going to move a dead body, a three-day-old dead body, is going to unwrap it first. Nobody's going to do that. And no one who's trying to go unnoticed, who's trying to get in and out quickly, is going to just take time to kind of tidily fold up the cloth and neatly place it at the end of the bed. So in setting the scene, John wants to draw a contrast between what's happened in this tomb which is, by all accounts, somebody is no, who was dead is no longer here, and what might have happened, even if somebody who was dead later wasn't anymore. So if you go back, there's one other account in the Gospels of somebody being dead and then not dead. In John 11, a good friend of Jesus named Lazarus died, and it caused Jesus great emotional anguish. He was really broken up over it and decided to bring Lazarus back to life. That was a way to glorify the Father. And so what Jesus did is he prayed, and Lazarus came out of the tomb. He'd been dead for a little while. But listen to how different the scene is, and see the contrast here between what John is laying out, the orderliness, the, the tidiness of the empty tomb with what happens with Lazarus. So this is John eleven forty four. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. So there's no doubt that this is a miracle. Lazarus was dead, but he has to be unbound. His face was all wrapped up. I'm just assuming. 
But I bet that Lazarus didn't just jump up, kind of spring up and run out of there. He probably came out feeling pretty weak. He was just dead. Kind of like, man, that was a day. But I don't think it was like that for Jesus. If we're reading this the right way, and I think we are, Jesus was brought back to life by the divine power of God, which is really his his own power. And that's another difference between Jesus and Lazarus. Lazarus was dead, and he needed the Son of God to bring him out. Now, Jesus is the Son of God, and he got up seemingly all on his own. He didn't need anybody else there to take the binding off. He didn't need anybody else there to help him. And he said, I don't need these old linens anymore. I'll just leave these here. These are no longer of use to me. You know, it's kind of like people are going to be here in a little while. I better fold these up and make it look nice. And then he walked out. Lazarus had to have others help him out, unbind him. We shouldn't miss that John is drawing a stark contrast. Jesus unbound himself. Jesus got up all on his own. He didn't need to have somebody command for him to rise. He, according to his own power, the power of God, loosed the pangs of death and unbound him. And I wish I could have been there to see that part. Can you imagine being there? All of a sudden, the stone begins to move. And Jesus walks out. Verse 8 now. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture. That he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now John is the first to believe, and I think it's implied that Peter begins to believe here as well. Two things are happening. It's a work of God that John begins to believe. Don't think for a minute that even standing in a tomb, remembering the words of Jesus, seeing the discarded linens, that's enough to move a person from skepticism to true belief. Only God can give true belief. And and that's why I believe it's important to engage with, with real questions when it comes to the resurrection. We absolutely should say, are these accounts reliable? Is history, does history point to this? We should engage with those, but at the end of the day, we will always have to lean on God to bring belief. You can present a person with the most reasonable explanation of the resurrection, and by far, it is the most reasonable thing to believe. But they will only begin to worship Jesus If God quickens their dead heart, if for once they had a heart of stone, he replaces it with a heart of flesh. My college major was in religion. And sometimes we use the words religion and and faith interchangeably, but it's possible for religion and faith to have have very separate meanings. Uh, To a large in a large part, my degree was in the, the study of world religions. But even more than that, it was in the study of why people are religious. Why are we drawn to claims of higher power and greater realities and stuff like that? One of my professors was a really interesting man. Kind of proves, illustrates the point that I'm making. Just because you learn something, just because you read something, doesn't mean you believe something. So he taught New Testament Christianity. 
He had a PhD from Princeton. It's a good school. He'd written books on the New Testament. He could sight-read New Testament Greek. And he didn't believe that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. So think about that. It's possible to know just about everything about the world of the New Testament. It's possible to be considered an expert in the New Testament, the people and the teaching of Jesus. But you can still believe that he died a long time ago. And when Christians claim that he rose from the dead, you can believe that that's just a heartwarming story that they tell themselves to feel better in bad times. People want to know, well, how will my family member that I love, how will a friend that I love come to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead? Absolutely plead with people. Absolutely reason with them. It makes sense. If you're open to it, the resurrection of Jesus is by far the most plausible explanation for what happened on this day almost 2,000 years ago. The conspiracy theories that have been concocted since then make very little sense and have very little historical standing, none, uh, in comparison to just the simple explanation that this did really happen. But the truth is, for people who deny the resurrection, it's rarely about that. It's not that they've considered the evidence. It's not that they've reasoned. The bottom line is if Jesus really did rise from the dead and he did, that has to change everything about your life. You can't hear that and be the same. You can't know that and and have the same priorities you used to have or care about the same things you used to care about. But in order to believe in a real way, Only God can give that kind of belief. Romans 10, 9. If you believe, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead, you'll be saved. Only God can do that. And so if you want to know what you should do about somebody you love that doesn't believe what you believe, that that isn't here with you this morning because they don't care to worship Jesus on a resurrection Sunday, you should pray And you should ask God to help them believe. It's rational. It's logical. But it also comes with a big shift. You can't believe and remain the same. And that's why people resist. They don't resist because the evidence isn't there. They don't resist because they find it implausible that somebody could do this even. They resist because... It means changing everything about the way they live. It means changing everything about what they believe. It means changing everything about who they are. If God was raised from the dead, everything is different. And so ask God to show the person, the people that you love his glory and what's true. Because only he can guide them to believe. So they see the scene in the tomb, but it's God who gives the belief. Now let's go back to verse 10. So the disciples go home. But Mary, who was the first person there, stayed. And I want to read her experience with Jesus. And as I do that, I want to draw your attention to one thing that Jesus says to her. It's unexpected and even hard. But it really is such good news to us. So let's pick it up. Verse 11 now. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. 
And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one on the head, one at the head, and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I, I'll take him away. Now before I read the rest of this, I just want to set up what happens next. So though she's now well known, most of Mary Magdalene's prominence comes from fictionalized stories And prior to the resurrection account, she factors very heavily in the resurrection accounts, but prior to this, the only reference to her that we're specifically sure of in the Gospels comes in one verse in Luke chapter 8. She's called Mary Magdalene because she's from the town of Magdala. And so in a way, Mary is, is here, but she's also showing us the shared experience of humanity. All people have a similar experience with Jesus to Mary from Magdala. She didn't recognize Jesus at first, which the Bible says is actually true of all people. People are prone to crafting God in their own image. Sometimes that happens literally. People worship images and idols, and other times it's figurative. People say things like, you know, I I just don't think a good God would let bad things happen. Or, you know, I, I don't think if there's really a loving God, hell would even exist. We craft God in our image, despite the fact that no sacred scripture teaches that way. Despite these statements being ungrounded anywhere else, they're just based on our own preferences. People are really good at crafting a God who fits their desires, who fits their preferences, who fits their worldview. So we don't really, we're not really good at recognizing God on our own. And Mary didn't recognize Jesus. And again, it's because she was looking for him according to her present view of things. The way that she was expecting. She expected to find a dead body wrapped in linens. So Romans 3.10 says that no one is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. That's not hyperbole. Apart from his intervention, nobody seeks after him. And that doesn't mean we can never know anything of God, or even certainly that we can come to see him, we can. It means that left alone, we'll continue in a pattern of looking for God in the way that we expect to find him. And the way we expect to find God is always smaller and simpler, and more confined to the constraints of this world than he will ever be, or that we'll ever be able to contain all of his glory, or account for all of his glory. See, we want a God who we can understand. We want a God who we can label. We want a God who plays by our rules, like the rules of you die and you're dead. But God is ruled by no one. And every time we confront him, 
he will surpass our expectations. He's always bigger. He's always grander. He always has more glory than you will ascribe to him. Always. It is impossible for you to rightly and accurately and fully ascribe to God the glory to his name. Only Jesus can do that. And that's why we need to be given new life in Jesus to be able to worship, to be able to be and see God, to be with and see God, to be able to worship him as he is rightly to be worshiped. The good news, though, for us this morning is he doesn't leave us on our own to do that. He doesn't just say, you're never going to get this right, so, I'm, so forget the whole thing. We're not left to search him out on our own. We're not responsible for that searching. We're not left to wander in darkness hoping for just a little ray of light. Quoting Isaiah, Jesus says, and this is Matthew 4, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in, that, in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. So just like he does for Mary, when we're open to him, when you're asking Jesus, show me who you are, Jesus will come to each one of us and call us into light. And we see here with Mary, remember she kind of stands in for all of us, how he does that. Jesus could do something spectacular. He did sometimes, but that wasn't his preferred way. He did miracles, lots of them. But his preference was really, if you read this in the gospel, if you read the gospels, Jesus' preference really is to sit with people and talk. It's, just, it's to teach. It's to have conversations with people. It's to engage them and look them in the eye. The incredible thing about God is that even though he is more grand than you know, more glorious, he is personal and intimate with every single person. He doesn't call groups of people. He comes to each person on your own and calls them by name, calls you by name. On this morning where we celebrate the the power of Jesus to triumph over something as powerful as death, let's just take this minute and recognize that he now takes all the power that is that he has used to conquer death, and what he does with that power is he brings it to each person individually, by name. He calls you by name. Look what he does with Mary. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to the brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So Jesus calls Mary by name, and in doing that, something clicks For Mary, her eyes are open. Light comes in. And he's calling you by name too. She didn't recognize that before. She didn't recognize him before he did that. But now that he's spoken to her, now that he has opened her eyes to see, she knows it's him. So she's excited. She cries out, teacher. But Jesus says something then that I I find really curious. 
He says, do not cling to me. I, I wonder why, of, of all the things Jesus would say when she's so excited, why would he say, don't hang, don't hang on to me? The reason is not because she can't touch him. If you know some of the Old Testament, there's a times when people can't look at, can't be near, can't gaze upon God. That's not the reason. Over the next few days, Jesus is actually going to be touched by several people. Jesus' meaning of why would he say, don't cling to me, is understood when we, when we get a little bit more into this expression. It means, don't cling to me, means to hold on to something really tightly, even to, to grab and not want to release. So Mary's reaction makes sense. Probably the reaction of a lot of us. She thought that she had lost Jesus, and now she never wants to let go of him again. I can just assume if somebody very close to me almost died, I would probably do exactly this. Seeing that I I could have lost them, I would grab, grab them and I would feel like I never want to let them go again. But just as her other experiences were, just as all Jesus is always doing His plan, his possibilities are greater than Mary will know and can even imagine in the moment. So he says, I'm going to ascend to the Father. And when that happens, God, the Holy Spirit, will come. And everyone who believes in Jesus will know a personal intimacy with Jesus forever. Through the Spirit, all Christians, not just the ones that can reach out and touch him, not just ones that can reach out and hug him, All Christians know what it's like to be in this moment, to be with Jesus. So the resurrection of Jesus isn't just something that happened a long time ago. And and it's a a powerful anecdote when we tell ourselves when things are hard. But now, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can know God personally. John 17, 3 says that everyone who knows Jesus Christ has the promise of eternal life through a real, personal Savior. And everyone who knows Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit. So you're never alone again. But God is always with you. What Jesus is telling Mary should speak so powerfully to us. She wanted him to stay. If it were up to Mary, he would have stayed forever. But he is telling her, I have to go. Because if he stayed there, what would happen? Sure, a few people would would get to see him. A few people would get to hug him. A few people would get to touch him. But because he's going, because he went, believers everywhere and through all times can know him personally. Hard as it is for us even here in this room to say, I wish I was there on that resurrection morning. I I, I think there's a lot of us who said, oh man, I wish I was there on that resurrection morning. How great would that have been? How powerful, how cool would that have been? How personal would it have been? We actually, church, have it better today. We can know and have more of God today than Mary could in that moment standing face to face with Jesus. And the reason 
is because when Jesus went to the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit. So now every Christian can personally and permanently have the intimate fellowship of God all the time. Morning or evening, good or bad, when you're awake, when you're asleep, when you've sinned, he's still there. When you've repented of sin and felt his grace, he's there too. If you wonder, where is God in my life? If you are open to Jesus and you've received his offer of grace to come in, he is not distant from you. He is not just near to you. He's not just in front of you, a few feet like Mary. He's inside of you. He dwells in you. That's the promise of the resurrection. Because Jesus rose from the grave, it's not just a few people, a few hundred people that get to know him. It's everybody who he calls by name. And if you wonder, I don't, has he called me by name? If you're not sure this morning, ask him to. Say, Jesus, will you call me by name like you called Mary? I want to see you. I want to call you teacher. I want to call you friend. I want to call you savior. I want to call you Lord. I, I want to be with you. We have a better view now. We can have a greater experience of Jesus now than anyone could while he was on earth. Because... He was resurrected, he ascended to the Father, and now to glorify him and to empower and dwell all believers, the Holy Spirit has come. So on this Resurrection Sunday, my prayer for every single one of us is that you would know the personal call and the intimate relationship that can be yours because of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is alive and you can be too. When you wonder where is he, he can be with you. When you wonder will he ever leave me, he says no. Mary clings to him. What Mary didn't understand was it was actually Jesus that was going to come and cling to her. And come cling to you. He'll never let you go. He'll never let you go. Let's pray. Jesus, may your name be praised. For you come and you call us by name. And you never let us go. I pray if there's anybody listening to these words who wonders if they have a personal relationship with Jesus, that you would settle that question this morning. You would let them know that it is always your desire to dwell with every single person. And we're given that gift when we place our faith in you. So may faith be placed and grown in you. For it's in your name we pray. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online 
at osefc.org.